Hello and welcome to Wellness Curated. I'm your host, Anshu Bahanda. My mission is to empower you with health and wellness so that you can then go and empower others. In a world that's often uncertain and ever-changing, some constants remain. Death is one of them. So let me share with you this beautiful thought by Sadhguru, who's a yogi, mystic, and best-selling author. He says, every breath you take, you're getting closer to the grave. But every breath you take, you can also get closer to your liberation. We got so much invaluable information today. Listen to this. Because if I'm not aware that I am dying, I'm not actually going to know how to live. If I keep living in this illusion that this physical body, this drama, this story, this personality is here forever, well, then all I'm going to want to do is keep keep padding it, right? I should make some more money. I should have some more power. I should have better relationships. I should have more people following me on Facebook. I should, right? We're we're always just going to look for things to pad the false self. Welcome to this chat, Divine Soul Sadhviji, renowned spiritual leader, motivational speaker. We explored if there is life after death, the end of life, consciousness, and the different ways we treat the body after death. Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati Ji, I want to ask you a very difficult question. How do you perceive death? Death is the end of the physical body, which includes with the body, of course, the physical brain, which means that it's an end not only of my actual limbs and bones and muscles, but it's also an end to the way that this individual I, with my particular brain, how I identify that this I intersects with the world. Because how I interact with the world is dependent on my personality. And that personality is anchored in the physical brain, which we know, of course, because when you alter the physical brain, personalities change. And so it's an end of the body. It's an end of the way that through this body, my individual lowercase s self, that interaction and experience, but it's a beginning of the unbodied me. It's a beginning of whatever the next unfolding of the karmic journey of my soul, of my subtle body. As I go on this sacred journey to the truth, to the divine, to oneness. We all have to die one day, right? That is a definite. And we will see our loved ones leave this planet as well. I mean, it's very, very sorrowful for people to see their loved ones go. How do you suggest people prepare for this eventuality? I always say, as tragic as it is, when it's our parents who we lose, 
we actually, even though we miss them and are sad to no longer have their physical presence, we actually should be happy. And the reason is that there's only two options. One option is they die first. The other option is we die first. For parents to lose their children is significantly more tragic in the fact that not only is it a loss, but it's a loss that is unexpected. It's a loss that is, you could say, against the flow of nature. So as far as thinking about our parents, it's inevitable if life goes according to the way that life is supposed to go. Okay. We have loss of spouses, loss of siblings, loss of people where we wish that it hadn't happened. And then you've got loss of children. Again, so critically and deeply tragic. There isn't, you know, honestly, there isn't a way to prepare other than to connect with them while they are living on a soul-to-soul basis. The more that I am connected simply to their physical presence, the more I'm connected simply to their personality, their way of speaking, their way of acting, their way of living, the harder it's going to be for me when they're not here. Because once they're no longer here in the body, the only way that I have to connect with them is soul to soul. Mm -hmm. But if I've never done that, that's going to be really difficult for me, especially in the midst of grief and loss. And Mm -hmm. so the very best thing that you can do, and not only is it going to prepare you for the inevitability or the possibility of death of loved ones, but Mm -hmm. it's also going to deepen your relationship with them while they're alive, which is as you interact with them, rather than being focused only on their body or only on the words that are coming out of their mouth or the actions that they're doing. And you connect with them soul to soul, which means, of course, I have to drop into my soul to connect with their soul. My physical body can connect with their physical body. We can hug. I can sit in their lap. We can shake hands. We can, you know, do all of these physical things, physical body to physical body. My intellect, my mind can connect with their intellect, their mind. We can discuss things. We can debate things. But if I want to connect with their soul, my physical body can't do that. My intellectual mind cannot do that. Only my my soul can do that. And so I need to drop into my soul, which is even even through my heart. Because, of course, the heart is that place where we feel for them, we love them, but we love them in a way that still is this this emotional connection of one personality to another personality. Okay. Whereas if we can drop into the soul, only then can we connect with their soul. And so not only will it deepen on a very powerful level your relationship with them now, but it will leave you not so lost when you no longer have a physical body there's to connect with because you'll already have that connection with their soul. No one's ever said that to me before. Very powerful what you've just said. How would you suggest we connect to someone's soul? 
by dropping into our soul. That's the thing. Your intellectual mind cannot do it. Think about connecting with someone just heart to heart. Let's start with just the heart. If you say to me, how do I connect with their heart? Well, the only way is open your heart. You can't do it with your mind. The only way to connect with someone else's heart is to open yours. And when your heart is open, then you're able to actually feel someone else's heart, which we know. I mean, when you're with someone in love, whether it's a family member, a friend, a spouse, whoever it may be, you feel it. When you look in their eyes, you feel something. You feel that heart of theirs, that beautiful, sacred heart of theirs. And you feel it connecting to your heart. For the soul, we just have to go deeper. And so in our meditation, we drop into soul. We let go of that which is not self, the physical body, the mental gymnastics, the feeling states, the emotions, all of that, the thoughts. And eventually we drop into that truth of the soul. And when you do that, when you are sitting with someone, when you're sitting from your soul level, automatically you'll be able to connect with theirs. That is one of the most profound things I've heard. Thank you for that. And how do we prepare for our own death? We know we're all moving closer to death every moment, just a matter of when. How do we prepare for it? First of all, you know, you say we all know we're going to go. And yet, ironically, most of us live and act like we're not going to go. If you see the way that most people live, yes, on an intellectual, theoretical level, they know they're going to die. But most people don't actually live with an awareness of death because it's really hard. I mean, you think who wants to hold that awareness all the time? But we actually have to. Because if I'm not aware that I am dying, I'm not actually going to know how to live. If I keep living in this illusion that this physical body, this drama, this story, this personality is here forever, well, then all I'm going to want to do is keep, keep padding it, right? I should make some more money. I should have some more power. I should have better relationships. I should have more people following me on Facebook. I should, right? We're, we're always <laughs> just going to look for things to pad the false self. If we believe that that's actually the eternal self, that I'm never going to die, that this is, this is here to stay. And that's when we end up living our lives in illusion and in ignorance and in falseness. And so, and so the question simply becomes then, well, knowing that, how am I going to live? That it's not I'm going to live in this illusory world just accumulating and padding for 85 years. And then in the few months or few years before I die, I'm suddenly going to start reading the Bhagavad Gita and chanting a mantra. And, and, and I, should, I, should, I should murder God. First of all, you only live at the end of your life the way that you've lived your whole life. And so when you ask about how to prepare, it really is an awareness that this day could be my last day. And therefore, am I living it the way that I would want to? Now, it's not, it, that's not a license for 
you know, decadence that you've been given 24 hours. So do all of the wild and crazy things, because of course, hopefully you'll live a lot more than a day, but it's a way to see your day. It's a filter through which a lens through which we look at our life, the way we speak, the choices Mm -hmm. we make, the way we think, the things that we get upset about. And you really ask yourself, if this were my last day on earth, would I really yell at this person about that? Would I really give this one a hard time? Would I really waste it being angry or jealous or competitive? Or would I realize those things are not important? So that awareness is critical. You know, here in Rishikesh, where we have the Ganga Aarti every evening, Mm -hmm. usually in the Aarti, I keep my eyes closed. But the... The cremation ground for Rishikesh is across the river from us and then down maybe, I don't know, maybe 500 meters, maybe 600 meters. So it's a long, it's a long way down. But in the nights, as the sun sets and it becomes dark, if you've got a blazing fire down there, we can see it. And when... When the cremations are going on, I always try to keep my eyes open and to meditate upon that. Because the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, oh, my God, those family members standing around a cremation of their loved one, they must hear us in the arthi because, of course, it's broadcast and loudspeakers and whatnot. They must hear us singing, dancing, celebrating, and they must think, my God, the audacity of these people to sing and dance and celebrate when my loved one has died. And yet, if I can meditate in such a way where I stay anchored and grounded in the singing and dancing and celebrating, Mm -hmm. and... I realize that's me over there mourning my loved one. Like mm-hmm. I am, I am, I am the one singing, dancing, celebrating. And I am the one mourning. If I can go deep, I am also the one burning. I am the one right. in fire, but not losing. The presence of me here singing and dancing because there isn't that distinction. And I realized that it was only my Western sensibility that would have been insulted at the audacity of people to sing and to dance while the cremation was taking place. Because in India, we understand it's all it's the the river of life. And yeah, over here, there's cremations. Over here, there's cremations, and over here, there's arti, and it feels very separate. We feel very safe over on our celebratory side of the river, but the truth is that you just go a few feet above the river, and the flames of the cremation and the flames of the arti, they're intermingling, and you can no longer tease them apart, and so to really meditate on death, realizing you're going to be the one mourning and you are the one burning and you are the one over here dancing. It's all happening simultaneously. 
This is Anshu Bahanda. You can find our podcast Wellness Curated on Apple, Spotify, and a host of other channels. So you're talking about India and Hinduism, right? About how people feel. So in Hinduism, people believe in life after death. Tell us about that because that gets questioned so much in the Western world. I mean, there is a lot of people in the West moving towards that philosophy. So how do you explain it to someone who doesn't believe in it, no matter what religion or culture they come from? So if someone really doesn't believe something, you're going to have a really difficult time convincing them. People are very very stuck in their ways of thinking. And by people, I mean, of course, all of us, not they, mm-hmm. but it's, it's all mm-hmm. of us. It would take a tsunami of evidence to convince us otherwise. And sometimes in the face of a tsunami of evidence, we still are not convinced otherwise. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is there's actually so many stories, true stories. I was just reading one of a child, a young child, who vividly remembered his past life. He had a birthmark on his head, interesting shape of a birthmark. And he told his parents that that was where he was hit by an ax and he was murdered. Mm -hmm. He actually remembered the name of the village where he was murdered. And he remembered who did it to him. And he took his parents there and... They spoke to the people in the village who said, yeah, I mean, the boy was maybe four. And in the village, they said, yeah, you know, this many few years ago, there was this disappearance of a man. Nobody knew he had been murdered. They just thought that he had had disappeared. And this young boy was able to actually show them where his body was. He knew where Mm -hmm. he had been murdered. And it was way out in the woods somewhere. But they got, you know, the police and all of the forensic people, and they actually found the skeleton. And they found the axe that he had been murdered with that actually matched matched the birthmark that the boy came into this life with. And they found found the person who the boy said, this was the guy who murdered me. That's amazing. There's lots of stories like this. Mm -hmm. But I think the best way to convince them is really to just show them so many of the these stories because otherwise if somebody doesn't remember their past lives and doesn't believe in it there's not going to be anything else that you have to convince them but I would say Mm -hmm. also don't worry so much about convincing other people everybody's here with their own karmic unfolding what's important is that you know And that you live your life with an awareness that we are going through these cycles of birth and death until we Mm -hmm. actually experience moksha, until we actually let go of the falsehood, of the false identifications, of the ego, of the history, of the grudges. We finally let go and then we can be free. That's moksha. Okay. The body is not the problem. The mind is the problem. Nobody ever is kept from moksha because of their elbow or their knee. We're kept from moksha because of our mind. It's said so beautifully, man eva manushya nam karanam bandha mokshayo. The mind is the key. 
to your bondage or to your freedom? Again, it's a fabulous way of putting it. You're talking about a universal consciousness, right? You, when you say that I'm also the person in the funeral pyre and I'm also the family member grieving, but I'm also me here celebrating the RP. So talk to us a little more about consciousness and death. When we use the word consciousness, there's a lot of ways that we use it, but two main ways. One mm-hmm. is a, a product of the brain. So you say, oh, she's out of surgery. Is she conscious? Meaning essentially, is she awake? Is she back? Is she still under anesthesia or is she out? She's conscious, she's unconscious. Or, you know, he got hit in the head with a baseball. He was knocked unconscious. But the way that we're talking about it here is not that. It's not the level of awake, asleep, here, not here. It's that which really is the truth of who I am. That which I experience through my body, meaning I experience my consciousness through my brain. If I were brain dead, consciousness would still exist, but I wouldn't be able to be conscious of it. I would not be able to interact with consciousness. I would not be able to anchor in consciousness or to live live consciously. So, So consciousness is, it's that which we know through the body, but it doesn't depend on the body. It doesn't need the body. It's not dependent on in any, in any way. It's beyond the body. It's just that Mm -hmm. I use, I use my body to understand it, to interact with it. Consciousness is one when you look at it on that level of consciousness. And so when we speak about soul and we speak about spirit, well, there really is only one soul. I mean, we talk about souls like it's plural, but it's actually, it's one. It's one infinite ocean in which there are, there are waves. And these wave forms are what you could consider atma, our individual soul. Okay. It's here for a while and it changes. It takes on a body and then it no longer has a body mm-hmm. and it takes on a body. But mm-hmm. it's even as it's atma. Ultimately, it's atma, meaning if you took a spoonful of water out of a wave or a dropper full of water from a wave and you looked at it under a microscope, what you would see is ocean. The scientist isn't going to say this is wave. He's going to say or she's going to say this is ocean. We identify as the body, as the personality, but ultimately... We are consciousness. It's like identifying as the wave when really we are ocean. Body is here. It's got got a a weight, a height, a density. I mean, there's all these different, you know, ways of measuring it. it. It exists in physical form. The illusion is the idea that that's who I am. It's like saying I'm the wave. Well, the wave is ocean. And so we are consciousness. Incredible. You know, when a child is born, 
automatically we teach them fear of death you know that oh my god oh my god this person might be going this person might not have too long to live so how would you suggest we teach children about death i think we should teach them it's nothing to fear you know i i think that the indian way of doing it is actually really so beautiful because it makes it a part of life there isn't a separation the way that in the west we really keep it having children witness death and be at cremations and be there i mean there's there's just a a flow of life and death here that i think is actually a lot healthier than the way that we do it in the west so i would definitely not teach children to be afraid i would teach them to be afraid of not living while they're alive so if you're saying to them for example so and so only has a little bit of time left or so and so may not be with us for a while well they shouldn't fear that that person's going to die they should fear that they didn't tell the person i love you yet and so you turn it into an opportunity so and so might only be with us for a short period of time make sure you tell her how much you love her make sure you give her enough kisses make these last days weeks months years really precious for her that would be the way that i think we should teach children introducing them to death at a young age so that they they become aware from from youth that this is temporary this is temporary we are not permanent here and that yeah people we love are going to die a good practice is you buy kids goldfish cuz they keep dying okay you're gonna have to have the conversation over something that isn't quite as dear to their heart as a grandmother or a grandfather or god forbid a mother or father teach them about it. it's going to help pad the way for when you start teaching them about loved ones in the family do you know how different religions have different treatments for the body after death so whether it's burial cremation feeding it to the crows etc once the consciousness is gone does it matter how the body returns to the ecosystem you could say it doesn't matter because the soul has already left and yet i'm very 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 hesitant to go against that which sages and saints and rishis and yogis who have done so much meditation and have channeled such divine wisdom that they've given us these these rituals these vidhis that they've said this is how it needs to be done so yes some of that is for the family members some of that is to give the family members the sense of ritual but if what they say is that the soul needs a you know this type of a puja or this type of a, a cremation why not but the dilemma with that of course is that we don't always get to to decide when I mean, people die in airplane crashes there is nobody people i mean people people drown off you know a cruise ship capsizes or something or whatever it may be we lose people where we don't have a body to do that with and and to me i don't think that someone who died by drowning in a cruise ship or by an airplane crash somehow that their soul was unqualified 
disqualified Mm -hmm. from attaining moksha because their final rites had not been done the way that it's deemed by our scriptures. So I do think you're right that once the soul has left the body, it probably doesn't matter much. And yet out of reverence and love for them, we do these things. The rituals, rituals are much more about us who are performing the ritual than anything that actually God needs from us or that a a soul who has now united back with God needs from us. And any other words of wisdom? The question is about how much life is in our days rather than how many days in our life. Stay healthy, stay safe. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our loved ones. But rather than being so focused on, you know, one more day, one more week, one more month, let us realize that we don't know how much time we have, regardless of how old we are. This could be any of our last days. And let us really use the time that we have as a precious gift. And that's such a beautiful message. Thank you, Sadhviji, for this incredible, incredible chat. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the Wellness Curated podcast. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family about it. And here's to you leading your best life. Thank you.